Welcome to the Agile Book Club podcast, where we hang out and talk shop with the authors whose ideas are shaping the agile landscape. Here is your host, Paul Clip. Hello, kind listeners. This is your host, Paul Clip, and welcome to another episode of the Agile Book Club podcast. Today, I'll be sharing with you the second half of my interview with Nacho Bassino, the author of the new book, Product Direction, How to Build Successful Products at Scale with Strategy, Roadmaps, and Objectives and Key Results. In the first half of the interview, which I shared two weeks ago, we talked high level about the kind of problems he was trying to solve, the people he was writing the book for, and and such. In this half of the interview, we do a deeper dive into some of the key takeaways about designing strategy, about creating roadmaps, about using objectives and key results. Some of the questions that came up for me while I was reading the book. And if you've read along, hopefully these are some of the same questions that came up for you. So let's get right into it. Welcome back to my interview with Nacho Bassino. What I've done is I've got a number of questions about specific things that I found in the book. And when I'm looking over them, at, I, I see that, that the OKR stuff triggered me and resonate, triggered or resonated with me a lot more than some of the other stuff. Um, I've got a couple of things I want to talk about because uh, I, I kind of broke it into the th- three, three sections, strategy, roadmap, and OKRs, um, with, with the strategy being what do we try to accomplish? The roadmap being how do we accomplish it? And the OKRs being how do we make sure that everybody's aligned and delivering? Is that fair? No, that's, yeah. <laughs> I will use it in a, the next product description, the next book description. <laughs> so talking about strategy, um, one of the things that, that I wanted to ask you, because you do, you do kind of touch on it in the book, is what is the role of the instincts of an industry veteran in influencing strategy when there's a hippo you know a highest paid person in the room who objects to an idea that arises out of the strategy process or presents an idea that didn't emerge from the process what do you do with that i think first of all that the 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 reaction or we we went you know there's a pendulum that's saying hey we accept everything that the hippo said and then we reject everything so i i think that many product teams have come to, to the other side of the thing um what i usually say is that you need to remove the the salary from the equation so this is an opinion as an, as an opinion is as valid as anyone's opinions probably coming from an expert is even more valid but we need to put it in in our insights world what i usually call it hey we need to come up with the insights so this is another insight you need to put it and and count yeah, um, make the, the this impact estimation or whatever you're doing with that or processing it as an equal. And going a bit further with your question is, hey, and one of these guys is rejecting something that came up with the strategy process. This is something that's super valid that happens all the time. And there are two aspects to it. The first one is, is it aligned to his personal goals? So this is, for example, someone coming from another department and let's say, Let's go back to our example. Our strategy is super growth-driven, so we are really focusing on getting more market share, so marketing activities and sharing more, more, or reaching more niches and so on. But this is the operations person who needs to reduce operation costs and say, hey, if you are going through all those niches, that will cause more problems and we will increase operation costs. So by hearing these positions, usually it's something that can 
update your strategy in interesting ways because you can either scale it. So, hey, dear CEO, we have these conflicts. What should we do? Or you can start kind of complementing the strategy a bit more, saying, hey, maybe we'll go instead of this niche, we go to this other niche, which may cause less problem or something like that. The second approach is when you don't have enough evidence. So, let's say this is we are discussing between two initiatives that are trying to accomplish the same, so two, two strategic drivers are trying to accomplish the same, but you don't have enough evidence to say this is better than the other one. So what I usually suggest in that case is that you take this uh, leap of faith and say, hey, we will go and experiment with it. And when you are having strategy you can and, and you connect it through all these elements, you're going to start doing the, the experimentation as soon as you're ready to start rolling out the strategy. So the feedback to that type of uh, opinionated uh, strategy decision is very easy to see in real life if you are following these sort of processes. So. I will argue that sometimes if you kind of, I always put as a battle, but it's not a battle. If you are having these sort of arguments, instead of continuing the, the discussion forever and ever and studying the opinions world, go down, do some, some experiments, and then get back to the strategy board with some data. So you just mentioned uh, another concept I wanted to dig into a little bit, and that is the wall of insights. The strategy process is ongoing. Insights are constantly coming in. How do you know when an insight is either no longer valid because you've pivoted or maybe your user base has matured or drifted? Yeah. So what I usually say is that insights have two components. So the first one is a fact, so an evidence that you are basing the insight on, and then your hypothesis. So say, hey, since I'm seeing this drop in conversion steps on the funnel, I believe that by focusing on improving the experience here, we will have achieved this sort of impact. So there are the two components. The way that the insights become irrelevant is when the, the fact changes. So if the fact changes, of course, the, the hypothesis is no longer valid. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, absolutely. I appreciate that. It, it directly addresses the question. So you also write about the importance of bringing data. Um, and in fact, you write about the importance of bringing data twice, once towards the beginning of the book and once towards the end of the book. And I've got questions about how to use this data and how much data you need. The first one is when you're bringing product data, like user behavior or, or, or analytics, if you bring a lot of negative data, does that risk throwing you into a purely reactive strategy? And how do you avoid that if so? I love the way, the, the way you frame negative data because the data is negative. It can't be negative. It's just data. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I see what you mean. Like, like data, the, the, the problems that your product has shown by the data you are collecting. So I, I, I see this in two ways. So the first one is if you look at, for example, some, some way of... Uh, prioritizing some of the strategic drivers, you can think about, for example, about the Canon model. So if you are not covering the basics and your your your, your product has some nasty holes, you can do all the, the very nice thing and, and shiny new value that you want to add to the user, but they will still don't get that value because the basics are, are broken. So there, if there is a catch-up to do that needs to be set in the strategy, I, I would say I do appreciate that. I, I, I do think that... This brings down some of the, the leaders who are super visionary and are thinking three steps ahead, saying, hey, this is a reality, so let's face it, and let's at least have a discussion of allocation between fixing the basics and um, doing this great innovation or following this new growth with the strategic driver. 
Uh, and the, the second one is mostly tied to this correlation between how much you are doing to say keep the lights on versus in pursuing new strategic paths. So I think that when you are bringing, let's call it again, negative data, there is a percentage of your workload that will still be allocated to typical product optimization, typical product maintenance. So again, going back to the example I was just measuring, you may need to discuss how much that percentage is, but usually if there is in the, say the 20% range, that's normal product work and you don't need to necessarily put it at a high level in the strategy as I was mentioning in the, in the previous example, because it's part of life. I'm always impressed when companies do things like um, kill their incredibly successful freemium model, for example, because they realize that, that they're targeting the wrong audience. They don't want people who are cheap, for example. And uh, it strikes me that one of the risks of depending too much on product data is your whole company strategy can become trying to delight the wrong people. I see what you mean. And to me, the input that gives you this um, understanding of, of, or, or prevents you from, from falling in, the, in this trap is the vision. So at the end of the day, the, the one, one of the biggest inputs for the strategy should be your vision. And then your vision should inform which users and in which ways you are trying to create value for them. Of course, when we said vision, maybe the vision is too high and then we, we may kind of have ups and downs in, in our path. But I think that's one one corner store of, of making the right decisions or, or targeting the right audiences. So at the beginning of the book, when you're talking about strategy, you, you talk about bringing data in to inform the strategy. At the end of the book, you mentioned something about starting with what you've got. Don't Don't let... Um, the the idea of having an ideal amount of data keep you from actually starting on the strategic process. So the, my question is, how do you know when you have enough data to make a decision? And is there a risk of having too much? Good question. Um, I, I think there is no risk of having too much. Maybe the risk is I'm still in this uh, collection mode so i don't make a decision even though i have enough so i think that that's more risky kind of the the analysis paralysis or that those sort of patterns going back to when you have enough data um i think that's something that um i, I briefly mentioned the book but i've kind of uh, grown into that afterwards is that you are constantly refining the strategy and the strategy um, you can even say that every product decision you are constantly refining it because you are collecting more data and you are refining decisions and for sure will not be the strategic driver as driver probably takes the same but you just inform it better but the decisions you take along the way in, in lower level nodes of your decision process may be affected by this new data so going back to your question reflecting on that last piece of the book and setting what you have, I usually recommend product leaders to do what I call reverse engineering the strategy. So they don't have a strategy, but they are doing things. So trying to understand, okay, why we are doing this, this probably, hey, this is the solution. The first why goes to the to the opportunity level. Okay, why are we pursuing this opportunity? Because we have this objective. And this, by the way, this relates to Marty Erickson um, decision stack that probably people are familiar with. Um, so the, the next level be, be beyond uh, objectives is strategy. So when you ask, why are we pursuing this uh, objective? That's when it becomes the, the, the strategy level. 
Um, for sure, there are gray lines, but that's kind of the, the logic framework. Uh, so why I encourage people is to say, okay, go back through this reverse engineering and place yourself at the strategy level and see, okay, is this reasonable? Why are we pursuing this? What hypothesis did we make to pursue a strategic driver? When you have no fact, no idea for pursuing a strategic driver, then you can be for sure, you for sure don't have enough data. And then the other thing that tends to happen is that you will have some evidence, but the evidence is too low. So you jump from this decision directly to start building solutions. And what I encourage people to do is, hey, you identify now your strategic driver doing this service engineering. You are still working in a solution, that's fine. But let's start building some experiments that addresses that hypothesis. So you collect more data to better to be more reassured of this being the right strategy. So yeah, this is usually how it played out. Usually people don't have enough data. Uh, I, I don't at least I haven't seen that many companies having too much data. Um, of course, the more you have, the more confident you are. So then you need to do experiments. That's the, the way I see it. Okay, let's move on to the, the roadmap section of the book. And for the roadmap section of the book, I've got, got the classic two, sec two questions about roadmaps. I want to hear what you have to say about them because the two ways that roadmaps go terribly wrong is they become commitments and they're too granular. How do you prevent those two things from happening? Yeah, I actually absolutely address those two in, in the book. And the problem is that we are coming to roadmap creation from the release plan world. So the you can call it the Gantt chart or whatever, but whatever tool you're using, it's essentially kind of features on, on a timeline. Um, and what I suggest is kind of, kind of go the opposite sides and even don't start there. So instead of, I was mentioning the reverse engineering for the strategy, for roadmap, I said, hey, let's drop that and start with the strategy. And the, the exercise I proposed there is to, what I call strategy refinement. So pretty much what we will do to refine, you know, epics into user stories and users into tasks. Doing that for strategy means that you have strategy driver, which has a very clear outcome. And you can use tools like um, opportunity solution tree or a user journey to understand where are the opportunities that will address this strategy driver. And those are the things of these opportunities, problem to solve, things that will add more value to the user are the things that will go into the roadmap. And so that prevents the, the, the being kind of uh, too specific to granular. That's the, the, the way I, I handle it. And by the way, usually the, the thing that also we need to keep in mind is that we want to um, follow the principle of planning the, the, the least amount possible. So we want to have in the near term things that opportunities are more granular, but in the longer term, as you are having a 12-month roadmap, you will have very big things that will not be refined yet. So it will still be big blocks. But the second point to address with this is the timeline. Because when you have this opportunity, you don't know the solution yet. So putting a timeline to it is extremely hard, if not useless. Um, so the way I try to flip the coin here is by saying, OK, how much amount of time do you think is reasonable to invest here to have a solution? So part of the problem will be addressed if we invest this much, but also that it's logical given the impact you're expecting from that opportunity. So the opportunity is just kind of not being enough, enough impact. Spending six months doesn't make any sense. So then you deprioritize the, the, the opportunity, even though you don't know the solution yet. So this tends to help with the with the timeline because, of course, there are no commitments because you don't have a solution built yet. But you can say from an investment perspective, you want to say, hey, we'll commit to invest six months in this particular problem space. And then the team has to go. And of course, 
this pushes for longer time periods. So I, I don't suggest any roadmap uh, smaller than quarterly based. All right. So one more question in the roadmap section. You talked a, a bit about technical debt and whether to incorporate it into roadmaps and how to deal with it. But the question that I have for you is, could you share some strategies for talking about technical debt with non-technical leaders? That's a bloated question. Uh, <laughs> has been a lot, a lot been written about it. Um, I I can share how I approach it, but usually my first recommendation is that it depends a lot on the leader because we are making here a generic recommendation, but depending on who you are speaking with, may have very different reactions to to the software. Let's let's make it more specific. If you are talking with the operation manager and you are speaking about incidents and, and, and the things that may happen if you are not solving technical debt, that will be super easy to understand. And then that's the angle you may want to take. For marketing, saying, hey, we are not being able to improve our product as fast as we can. That's the angle you can take with uh, a marketing guy. Maybe that's easier to, to resonate. So the first recommendation is more like, hey, understand your audience and maybe making a generic argument is not enough. Maybe you need to do some 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 one-on-ones to, to talk with different audiences. The, the way I typically handle it is when we can tie this very, say, very, very big refactor, that's usually the case, to some of the problems slash opportunities we are trying to address. And I have faced this in, in many multiple companies. For example, my most successful case was when we were trying to do a cloud implementation. So we have very old infrastructure, very Windows native, and we were trying to move to the cloud. And of course, we're moving to the cloud because it will have two big impacts. The first one is cost savings, and the second one was um, um, recovery system. So the, the, the yeah, emer- what is called the, the, the acronym? The, well, the rec- recovery system, in case things fail, you can kind of uh, start up in, in, in another node. Um, so this was something that I can tie to, as a product leader, I can tie to real business value or, or business risk, if you see it from another angle. And that's how we can actually sell this big refactor. Of course, the refactor will have many other benefits, like having a, a more granular um, service components, being able to iterate faster and whatnot. But if you try to add all these values that may be harder to, to, to explain and harder to demonstrate, then you are making it the case too, too big. That's the first example. Um, the second example I have was about um, being faster. So we're trying to... Um, so the problem we had was we were implementing everything and everything was taking forever to, to build. This is another typical scenario of technical debt. Uh, and the way we did it was by, by uh, addressing directly the lead time of things. So this was an e-commerce company, so we were super keen on promotions or adding new products, particles and whatnot. So tackling the cost of opportunity of not being able to react to those opportunities was the angle we took. So we somehow tied to to potential business value. And again, those two were very successful. Again, I think that the first step is understanding your audience and seeing what's important to them and trying to tie them to the value they will receive. Nice one. Nice one. All right, let's get into OKRs now, because this, I got ideas. Um, But the first one, really high level. There are tools which, if you use them poorly and rarely, still add value. You know, um, user story mapping. There are books written on it. But if you've just read a blog post and you decide to try it, it will give you more clarity, even if you do it poorly, even if you do it once. But OKRs, 
There are others that if you do them wrong, if you do them badly, they can do a great deal of damage. In which of those two categories would you place OKRs as a tool? That is a very good question. Because, for example, if I go back to roadmaps, say roadmaps, definitely they, they can be very, very harmful. With OKRs, I, I, I have the feeling that I have seen too many bad implementations to be inclined to say they are kind of dangerous. On the other hand, sometimes I saw where these companies were coming from. So reflecting on your story mapping example, I think that with no alignment, no clarity on what we're pursuing and, and nothing like that, even if you're using the, the typical bad OK implementation, which is output, maybe more, more useful than not having that. Um, but again, uh, my take is that if you implement them correctly, you will get a, a lot deal more value. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure how harmful they can be, but they are a bit dangerous. Do you have a take on that as well? I, I do. I, I think that um, the risk of bad OKRs is that they become a hammer with which to beat teams. Okay. And, and because when OKRs are poorly implemented, they're often top-down, they're often too granular, they're often not outcome-based. And so, and the teams don't have the ability or the authority or the courage to push back. And so they become, they, they create an implied accepted commitment. You know, you've taken on these OKRs, now you deliver to them. And so it creates over a lot of overhead, it creates a lot of stress, it creates burnout. Yeah. Reflecting on my own words, I think that OKRs bad implemented can be pretty close to roadmaps. Incorrectly implemented. So uh, maybe less granular than a release plan, but still with this uh, mindset of, hey, if, for this quarter, as you said, you committed to deliver these three outputs, so it can be it can go in that direction. But I also hear what you're saying, which is that a badly implemented roadmap, at least, not roadmap, but badly implemented OKRs still tells you where the leaders are thinking, what's going uh, on, yes. what, what, what they're trying to do. and uh, And I strongly suspect that... There are very few instances of good OKRs that didn't go through a rough patch to get there because it's hard to learn how to do. And when you do it quarterly, you only get to try four times a year. So it might take you a few years to get good at it. Yeah, that's true. And, and I think at some point, the problems with OKRs are easier to visualize and to have someone like a OKR coach or someone help you correct than, for example, the, the problems you may get with the roadmaps, which are more ingrained in the culture. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Good point. Good point. So if you're struggling with your OKRs, I think the outcome that I would take from this is, is twofold. Number one, because it takes time to learn, never be complacent in your process. Always be critical so that each quarter you get a chance to do it better. And secondly, as you say, an OKR consultant, if you're using OKRs and have been doing so for a while, you have a lot of data for an OKR consultant to look at and give you feedback on. And I guess, w would you fall into that category? Yeah, for sure. I have companies with OKRs. I try to be a bit more integral, so we're kind of trying to implement the, the whole direction thing, but for sure, OKRs are a good starting point. All right. A um, couple of specific uh, uh, challenges with implementing OKRs. What do you say to leaders who have too many high-level initiatives who insist that it's all important 
I try to confront them with reality. So if you push for all, you will get probably none or partially crap for everyone. And um, I usually play the game. So I say, hey, you have, uh, we can do it with tokens, with you know virtual money, whatever. So you have this money to allocate. What would you say? And, and you start seeing the priorities. So and they start seeing the priorities. Um, so I think there are exercises to also first one confronting reality, saying, hey, it might be all important, but you don't have the resources to, the resources to, to do all of them. So so sorry, I, I trust you that they are important, but sorry we can't. Uh, and then playing these games, I think that. Uh, allows them to visualize that even though everything is important, there are things that are more important. <laughs> and, and that brings us to the other side of it, which is that um, we see this all the time, and, and I very much sympathize with line managers or product managers who who are in a situation in which it's much easier to tell a person in power that we're working on it than to tell them we've deprioritized it. And, and what ends up happening when when teams start everything they're asked to do because it's easier to say, we'll get right on that boss. And when they need an update to say, we're doing our best boss, is that you end up with leadership that just doesn't have any faith in their teams. And you end up with teams struggling with, well, not struggling, just just accepting, what is it called? Uh, um, learned helplessness? Ah, yeah. <laughs> And both of those two things are stable. Learned helplessness is a stable system, and and dissatisfaction, distrust of your teams is a stable system. How do you disrupt that? That's a good question. I mean, my take. I, I usually work with the teams. So, to kind of, even though the, the kind of the CEO may hire you at the end of the day, you are, you are doing is trying to help the teams. So, I will start with the. I'm learning the learn helplessness. Uh, and there's a reason for that being so important is that, and you know this, that the, the foundations of product management are so much based on trust. So we need to establish this trust between leadership and product management. And by trust, I don't mean something like saying, hey, trust my gut because my gut is good. So it's, this trust is based on transparency. So transparency on the status, transparency on we are making decisions because we have this evidence and transparency to say, hey, I don't trust your evidence. Uh, let's do something else or let's uh, let's debate it or, or here's my opinion about the hypo example. So this this transparency, I think it's a, it's a corner so or the base floor to be able to build products. So if, if we don't have that, that's something that's uh, kind of doomed to failure. So that's that's my approach to take. I'm sure that the, the, there may be other approaches, but I start with the team and trying to make transparent the, the plans and visualize what, what they are doing completely. Love it. Love it. Um, there was an idea that I came across in your book, which I haven't seen elsewhere. Um, I haven't seen in practice, and that is peer OKR reviews. I've, I've seen companies that have a team which is dedicated to to giving feedback on OKRs or giving sign-off on OKRs that come from teams. But I can imagine one of the challenges with pure OKR reviews is creating the space for it. Um, there, what's the incentive for anybody to make time and energy to critique the OKRs of some other team? That's a good question. I think that uh, goes back to what we we're saying about hey, we, for example, the way I approach it when, when I'm kind of working as a consultant with companies is hey, you know that your OKRs are not good. That's why you hire me. And of course, you can 
paying tons of money to invest multiple hours of multiple consultants to review all of them. But you know what the principles are because usually, of course, we would do some training and they have the material. So they will know how good OKRs look like. So I will even say that this is not a big time commitment. It's, I usually do it in a session that's usually 90 minutes in which we have a structure where I say, hey, these are my OKRs. I will show it to the person, to the next to the next PM or the next uh, trio. Uh, I will receive it to some others. And I will just kind of put the comments based on the on the good principles of OKRs we know. And this feedback came first is kind of supernatural and people spend 90 minutes or even we can reduce to 60 minutes. It depends on the, on the size of the organization. But people spend 60 minutes on so many things that are useless that this one that can add a ton of value, I think it's a, it's a good exercise. And the incentive is, hey, I will have tons of people looking at my OKRs and giving me feedback to improve them, to make it better. And I will add my, I, I will help the organization improve the quality of OKRs that I know in turn, this is super important for the product organization, that will help me be more empowered. Because following the, the search of the book, even though we are saying, hey, leaders, you need to lead with context, the main reason is that you want to direct your teams to do the things that they will need to do or that fit the, the company goals uh, and empower them to do their own choices. So this is how, how they can feel that the, the improvement, the quality will help them in return because, of course, there's the, the empowerment line. All right, that's that's really enlightening because when I read that section, for some reason, I just assumed that this feedback mechanism was asynchronous. So you hold an OKR feedback session. I would say that this is kind of the the, the consultant way of doing it. So it's, it's kind of easier to to organize in in this setup, and I can kind of uh, facilitate the conversation and whatnot. But can be easily done asynchronously. I I I, I would say that if 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 the feedback is there, is useful, and is being implemented, the way you do it is less important than the than the, the feedback itself. How's the feedback you've gotten on the book so far? Has been very positive. To be honest, it was uh, beyond my expectations. Um, so it's a very niche book. So it's not like expecting to sell millions of copies. Um, but the um, the two side effects that I think are, are interesting is that uh, I'm getting a lot of good reviews and a lot of people proactively approaching me saying, hey, this was very valuable. And the second most important is because what you say is not the same as what you do, is that there is a constant flow of selling books. Uh, so it's kind of, kind of remain stable over time, which means that the worth of mouth mechanisms of people recommending to others is working. So that's I think that's even more rewarding in, in, in a sense. Well, there you have it. That was my interview with Nacho Pacino, author of Product Direction. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're in the product space, I hope you find this useful. I highly recommend the book. And you might have noticed one of the questions I asked was about OKRs. I asked about OKRs because I've seen them mishandled so many times. I honestly believe OKRs done poorly can be dangerous. And so that's the reason why I've invited Alan Kelly to be the next guest on the Agile Book Club podcast. We're going to be talking about the second edition of his book, Succeeding with OKRs and Agile, How to Create and Deliver Objectives and Key Results for Teams. Now, I know we've all heard a lot about OKRs, but you've seen them done wrong as well as I have. You know how dangerous it can be. And I think it would be very useful to hear from somebody in our Agile community about how OKRs can be done right in an Agile world. And I'm also always excited to talk to an author when they release a new edition, because most authors don't. The first edition of this book came out many, many years ago. I don't remember when it was first published, but it was quite a while ago. And 
And so when an author comes out with a new edition, it means they've learned something that they find so compelling they have to share it. And so we're going to find out what that is in two weeks when we talk to Alan Kelly about succeeding with OKRs in Agile. And now just a bit of news from me. If you're in Poland, I will be at the Agile by Example conference this coming week. I'm going to be talking about how to perform better and more effective one-on-one meetings and performance reviews. Yes, I know performance reviews. We all hate them. We all know what's wrong with them. But many of us have to do them. And so I'm going to be talking about ways of doing it without causing any more harm than necessary. And also... If you are a speaker, or even if you're not a speaker, but you have something to say, I want to let you know that the ACE conference is opening the call for speakers this week. And so by the time this episode is out, the call for speakers will be open. You can go to aceconf.com and submit a talk proposal. We welcome talk proposals from first-time speakers. So please think about what you want to share with the Agile community and and let us hear from you. We'd, we'd love to hear what you have to say. Thank you all so much. See you again in two weeks on the Agile Book Club podcast.